Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President for Health Science Center Faculty Development at the University of Louisville. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Faculty Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Faculty Health Professions Education. Once a week, we're going to come together to use this podcast to bring faculty development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. So today we're talking with Carrie Bonert, who's director of the Standardized Patient Program at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. Carrie, welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. So Carrie, you work in patient simulation. Yes. For listeners that don't know what that is, would you tell us what that means? So in healthcare, we can't guarantee that students are going to have equivalent experiences when they go out into the clinical world. We know that students may all see a certain disease, but it may not present the same way in every patient. And that makes it kind of hard to assess them because if every patient comes in looking a little bit different but having the same diagnosis or coming in looking the same but having a different diagnosis, then it doesn't create an even playing field for assessment. So simulation sort of started out in more of an assessment arena. And then once people saw what simulation could do, turned also into formative learning and introductory education activities as well. So simulation can take a couple different forms. In dentistry, you'll see that they have mannequin heads um, in their lab attached to chairs that recline and everything. So it's designed to kind of give a similar look and feel for those early learners. In nursing and in medicine, you might see um, task trainers. So little synthetic body parts like an arm for learning how to take a blood pressure or inserting an IV. And then they get more complex and can go all the way up to very expensive um, kind of robot mannequins that have vital signs that can change over the course of a learning event and can be impacted by what students do to treat the patient. That's mechanical simulation, and I engage in what some people call, it's all called human simulation. There's not a lot of consistency of terminology in this field. What I do is called standardized patient or simulated patient or simulation participant slash SP methodology. So what does that entail? So that is where we hire and train individuals to portray patients in different states of either illness or emotional distress or uh, different states of need. And they are carefully scripted and trained so that learners can have a more equivalent experience. So that way, if I know that everyone um, needs to diagnose headache, you know, headache can present in a thousand different ways. But this way, I can make sure that I'm evaluating my learners fairly because they're all seeing the same type of headache. So I can give that one case or that one standardized patient or SP to all of my learners and level the playing field for learning and evaluation. So are these actors? No. (laughs) So there are two camps in SP world. Um, Some who, mostly those that are based in big cities that have large actor pools will call this an acting job and some of them will only hire actors. Those of us who are not in those big cities um, tend to, like Louisville, we do have actors, let me tell you, we do. But we don't limit ourselves to actors because when you really get into the skills of this job, 
portrayal is very important, but the educational experience of the student is the priority. If all you consider is performance, 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 and you're not really focusing on how well does that standardized patient then educate and give feedback and engage with a student on a one-to-one level and um, de-escalate tension in the room and those sorts of things, then you're missing out on a lot of the richness of what can happen in simulation. We fall in the more um, constructivist camp and tend to, to think that people can learn how to do this job really well, even if they're not actors. So how did you end up in patient simulation, standardized patient world? Did you go to school for this? No, no. <laughs> I came into this 15 years ago. There was no, there was no, you know, formal training, accredited training back then, and I, it was an accident. So my good friend at the time was the this, this assistant director of the SP program here, and we had. I was also in her former job at the Kentucky Science Center. Um, and we knew each other socially, and she was being recruited away by a health cor- a healthcare organization. And she just called me and she said, I want to give him somebody's name when I leave, and we have the same skill set, and I think you'd be really good at this. Well, let's talk about the how do we use patient simulation in student assessment? What does that look like, especially for people who, who may never have done a standardized patient encounter? In assessment, this is, you know, we talk about. KSA, you know, knowledge, skills, and attitudes. And simulation doesn't address attitudes all that well, although you can get to attitudes through debriefing at the end of a simulation um, and hopefully make some adjustments there. But we do a really good job of um, either stimulating in a learning environment, either stimulating a student to activate their knowledge or practice a skill. And then on the assessment side, we can then assess their ability to activate their knowledge and assess a skill. So it's one thing to, um, and Dr. Rabelais, I'm sure you can attest to this, it's one thing to study a concept in a book and to um, kind of have a, an abstract concept of what that might look like in the clinical world. Um, and then a very different thing to be walking, talking, and chewing gum at the same time and be able to pull from that knowledge base and activate it in a live setting with a patient. Yeah, that's right. It is uh, night and day. Um, Even if you could recite verbatim what's in the book or the article, if you can't in real time apply and sort of dance with the nuance that Mm -hmm. comes with those, you're not terribly functional. Write that down, dance with the nuance. nuance. I love that, that's beautiful, let me grab a pen. Yeah, so that's really one of what I think makes um, simulation extremely special. In all of our situations at the University of Louisville and with our external clients, our learners know that they're entering simulation. We do not pull the wool over their eyes. Uh, We don't surprise them. They know they're being observed. They know they're being either graded or sort of observed for future growth. But it does give them also a safe place to trip and fall. So this is the equivalent of, for a music student of playing scales. Oh, so yeah. it's it's just vitally important that you know the notes and you can yeah. put them in the right sequence and the right orders and the, the fingering that works out to get that to go. But playing a scale is not playing a song. Yeah. Going to the bedside is playing the song. Uh-huh. I love that analogy. So I got, you got two analogies in like two minutes. I should I did. you. I know. Here we go. Here we go. Here I mean, go. this is unreal. Um, playing scales. Yeah. So what I would um, 
equate that to is, you know, in health professions education, we talk about problem-based learning or we talk about these like case-based learning and, and clinical reasoning. It's so important to develop clinical reasoning in our students and we call that a skill. It is a skill. But a lot of the ways that we teach it are not active. They're very kind of passive and um, slow and not in a bad way but where a student can take time and do it at a slower pace, the kind of thinking and constructing. But like you said, if we can then pull them into this environment where we can put them on the spot and they have to, you know, they've practiced all these scales, they've got them down and they know how to sight read, they know how to play certain pieces and they've practiced, but we're going to put them in a situation where they have to improvise a little bit and then it draws on all of that practice that they've done and pulling it together for a performance. So when when we try to teach critical thinking and clinical reasoning skills at the bedside in the hospital, um, it's far from standardized. So it's one person and one or two learners and neither of which got any training as to which way this is going to go, how it gets set up, mm-hmm. how it gets assessed. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a hit or miss proposition at best. Very vitally important, mm-hmm. but far from a, a, a way that a medical school could assess, does this intern now really know blank, whatever yes, that blank exactly. is. And so what you try to do, it sounds like, is to provide some standardization that mm-hmm. allows this to be sort of fairly assessed mm-hmm across all students yeah. in the school, recognizing that it's the only way to come at this, though imperfect, it's the only yes, way to really standardize that and assess. You know, so the field would acknowledge, field of SP methodology would acknowledge that there have been trends toward overly standardizing, where the SP is like robotic and given a script and they can only say these things. And, and I really believe that does a disservice mm-hmm. um, because we need to be able to have the flexibility to respond to how the learner is performing in the moment. And so that's one of the reasons that the field itself is turning away from the phrase standardized patient. And so I'm seeing more and more kind of in blog posts and literature, um, things like simulated participant. Also, we're expanding this methodology outside of health professions. And so we're not always representing a patient anymore. So um, some of my colleagues, uh, work with one of my friends is at um, an extension of Pitt, University of Pittsburgh, and she works with social workers, and so they have standardized clients. Instead, other schools work with um, law students, and so they have simulated clients as well. I think that's so important because that gives the learner that opportunity to practice the skills in a safe place, and I know you said it before, but if we give them that chance they have a better opportunity to grow and learn from it because when they go to the hospital and they're next to an attending they're kind of they're freaking out a little bit well and it's it's you know we teach in an environment where we're also providing clinical care in real time yes there's no simulations at the hospital and so we are in an afternoon going to see 10 patients and have two learners with us and do our best to educate along the way far from standardized in in the way we have to approach it because in real time we're addressing a mom's concerns and what happened with the baby and oh they just called and the blood counts this now what are you going to do and you're in the middle of it 
And that's good for them to see because it's the real world they're entering. But it's not the same as playing scales. That's here's this very complex piece go. Right. And that can terrify them. Right. Because they, oh, yeah. like I can't do this. Oh, no, yeah. no, you can. If you play enough scales and you practice enough, you can get to this. But yeah. throwing you into the complex piece can be really hard. Yeah. So, but they have to have both. Because if all you did was simulated, standardized, whatever you yeah. call them, patients, mm -hmm. if that's all they had, and then they show up mm -hmm. to be an intern, mm -hmm. they have no hope, right? Yeah. Because well, wait a minute. Carrie's not here to like tell this person to say it the right way, because yeah. this yeah. doesn't sound like appendicitis. And the nuance is that dance with nuance thing is that boy, they're all a little bit different, but they end up with the same disease. But it shouldn't uh -huh. sound like that. Uh -huh. And so that's the real challenge. They have to probably have both. Yeah. So one of the things that that we used to do um, that I really enjoyed, but that we've we've gone away from just because institutional priorities have changed, and that's okay is we um, would give students three different presentations of shortness of breath in the same day, or three different presentations of fatigue in the same day. Because, and that was an exercise in clinical reasoning. Yeah. Because the patient presentation might be exactly the same, but it really prompted them to dig into their data gathering skills and their physical exam skills, so the history taking their physical exam, their communication, to get at the underlying um, you know, the associated symptoms, the underlying etiology. The phytocommon pathway might be fatigue or shortness of breath, but there was 10 different ways it got there, and you got to dig through mm -hmm. which one got me to this mm -hmm. point because the treatments might be dramatically different. Mm -hmm. it, it's probably most exemplified in the neonatal intensive care unit where there's only about five things a neonate can do, no matter <laughs> okay. what's wrong with them. They stop breathing, yeah. they get acidotic, okay. they breathe hard, they have a seizure, I mean, there's only about five things that they'll do. They turn blue. But that's for a hundred different reasons. But there's a hundred things that diffuse, like hypocalcemia, low blood sugar, low blood pressure, sepsis, heart defect. All of that filters down into, there's only five things you can see. Yeah. And that's the challenge is figuring out where was the path that got me to the blue baby that stopped breathing. Yes. Which well, one got me there? So along those lines, how do you how would you develop a case? Not necessarily for that specifically, but like what is case development like when you're trying to think through all of those processes and right. you want the student to end up here? Right. How do you get them there? So it's it, it really you have to start with a learning objective Yay. or an assessment objective. <laughs> I know Stacey's gonna be so glad to hear me say that. Um, because, it, I mean, to do simulation for the purpose of simulation is a waste of time. You know, like, ooh, it's fun, it's cool, whatever. But, like, it has to be purposeful. And so in that instance, the goal was to prompt students to exercise their history taking and their physical exam skills. And it allowed us to see, you know, a, a lot of times on, like, on their boards, they'll get a question and the STEM would give them, like, all of the information. But we want to see, can they retrieve that information on their own? Do they know kind of what steps to take next? And can they, if we talk about it like choreography, you know, can they pull from the basic steps in order to develop their own routine that's that's specific to this patient? So it always, you know, I think it's really like curriculum development writ small. Mm -hmm. You start with the learning objective or your assessment objective, and then you think about, okay, what um, presentations would allow my students to, to, to achieve this or to, to force them to go in this direction or that direction. And then it takes a team. It is not well done in isolation. 
because it takes so many subject matter experts. So subject matter experts are, you know, obviously the, the faculty who have the clinical knowledge, but also the simulationist. Um, and this is a new term, simulationist. We have our own, our own title now. Um, so your simulation professional who can kind of see your blind spots and say, you can't bring me one paragraph, Jerry, that says the baby's blue, they did this, they did that. Like, you know, I'm going to have to, the, the student is going to come in and say, well, what, what have they been fed? What, what, how many, you know, ins and outs? They're going to have all these questions. So I can help you kind of see anticipate the things that you aren't thinking about that students are going to ask um, and also know how the SP needs information pre presented to them in order to be successful and then also depending on the population you may need someone with lived experience to inform um, your case and really round it out into a whole person. How do you ensure if they're walking in, they know they're in an SP clinic, they know this is clinical uh, clinical skills assessment, uh, maybe even they know that it's low stakes. How, how do you ensure that it's a an authentic experience for the student and they're not just performing and wouldn't actually do those skills? It comes down to training. So once we know that we have a simulation that we feel is well-written and ready for prime time, then we select, we're very careful, um, and Mimi Reddy, our assistant director in the SP program, is so, so, so good at really understanding an individual SP's skills and what they can bring and what they can portray. That's like her secret sauce. So we're very careful in selecting SPs who are able to, to do what the case entails. And some of that may be um, high emotional performance. Not all of our SPs are really good at highly emotional cases. Some of that may be um, de-escalating tension in the room. Not everybody's good at that. So whatever it is that the, the SP needs to be really good at for that particular learning or assessment activity. So we select the folks who we think are going to be the most successful and also demographics are a big part of it. You know, I can't cast a 32-year-old to portray a, an Alzheimer's patient. So we have to match the demographic to that as well. And the demographic is, of course, dependent on the case content. So, um, you know, if we're teaching whatever content we're teaching, we need to be within that, that realm of possibility. So what do you wish that faculty and how about our health professions learners, too? What do you wish that they knew about simulation? Simulation is a profession that involves its own unique skill sets. I want people to know that the work that SPs are engaging in is highly, highly cognitive. They are having to, you know, learn and memorize a case, output that case according to however the student is performing, know when enough is enough, so not divulge the whole case on the first question, but know how to pace <laughs> the interview as well. They have to intake, so they have to be observing and taking note at the same time mentally of what the student is doing so that they can later fill out an assessment form on the student. They have to have great communication skills because most of our encounters involve feedback, and that's one-on-one -on -one between the SP and the learner right after the encounter. We always wrap up the podcast by asking our, our talent, our <laughs> guests, to ask the listeners to, to do some sort of task or what's the next step after listening to this podcast? I would love it if you would Google like SPs in audiology or SPs in dental hygiene, SPs in 
public health, whatever your your profession is, just to see what do you find. Advancing the field is very important to me, and so I would love for you to see if there is a way that you could apply this or even um, principles of this in your own courses. Carrie, thank you so much for stopping by. I'm sure we'll be talking soon again. <laughs> Good to see you. We got a real treat for you next Friday on faculty feed, Dr. Kanitha Williams from the School of Nursing at University of Louisville will be here with us to talk about how she increased nursing student engagement through the use of an unfolding case format using real clinical cases. Join us next Friday. If you want to up your game as a professional educator or to enhance your leadership skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be as together we strive to make UofL a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to invest. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links and additional information from today's session, as well as our email address. Feel free to contact us at factfeed at louisville.edu. That's F-A-C-F-E-E-D at louisville.edu. Join us next time for more, and come hungry.